Thank you for joining us today for From the Field. I am Brittany Hurst-Marchett. I'm the Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission. And we are joined today with, by Dalton Henry and Peter Lodeman from US Wheat Associates. And I'm going to give them a chance to introduce themselves here in just a second. But I want to remind everyone that this is open for questions from anyone participating. So you can unmute your microphone. You can uh, send us a message in the chat that we will get an answer to, or you can use the reactions button at the bottom of your screen to raise your hand and we'll make sure that your question gets asked. So Dalton, if you wanna go ahead and start with an introduction of yourself and then we'll bump it over to Peter and then you guys can take it away. For sure. Uh, thanks, Brittany, for having us on, and thanks to the folks at Idaho Wheat uh, for the opportunity to talk a little bit about wheat trade policy today. Uh, so my name is Dalton Henry, I'm Vice President of Policy at U.S. Wheat Associates. Uh, essentially, with, within that role, uh, Peter and I cover everything from traditional trade policy, which we kind of think of as being tariffs and, and strict import barriers, to non-tariff barriers like pesticide residues and approval of uh, tech, breeding technologies, as well as food assistance. And so it does end up getting to be a pretty wide set of issues, but it's been something that I've worked for the state wheat group uh, or on Capitol Hill or for U.S. Wheat Associates for just uh, coming on 13 or 14 years now. And so wheat trade policy is, is the majority of what I've, uh, what I've known. Uh, and so Sure glad to, to be with everybody here tonight. And I'll go ahead, Peter Lotterman's a relatively new member of our staff. Give him a chance to introduce himself. Thanks, Dalton. Hi, everybody. Peter Lauderman. I'm the new Director of Trade Policy at U.S. Wheat Associates. Uh, been on board for about six months here. Uh, background in a variety of ag policy roles here in Washington, D.C., but but new to wheat as a commodity, uh, but had an opportunity these first six months to uh, dive into particularly food assistance as well as some, some plant breeding innovation topics. So uh, more than happy to, to talk about any of those today, but uh, for now, we'll kick it back to, to Dalton to start us off. All right, so Brittany, I've probably got about five minutes or so just opening comments on big things that are happening in wheat trade policy. And if that works for you, I'll probably cover those and then we can open it up for questions or? Yeah, that's great. That is great. Thanks. Essentially, we'll probably kind of cover it. And I, this is a, an odd thing for Peter and I. Uh, we've kind of been doing a, a little bit of this wheat trade policy roadshow. And I think this is the first one that the two of us have done together without slides. So no charts, no graphs, uh, no, no reason to fall asleep late in the afternoon uh, there in, in Idaho, because it's not that late in the afternoon. I, I'll apologize. I'm in, in Lisbon, Portugal this week, doing meetings with our Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, and uh, European staff. So this is essentially like a, it's a great time to talk about trade policy, because what we spend eight hours a day doing right now is reviewing barriers and export promotion strategies with our actual staff that are overseas. And so they, whenever they hit a trade policy challenge, uh, it's given us a chance to really kind of lean into those things a little bit. And we spend a little bit more time thinking about uh, some of those barriers and what that actually means for export of US grown wheat uh, than, than maybe we do some other days. So today, I don't wanna maybe talk just where we see the Biden administration at on trade policy, how that's impacting wheat growers. Probably talk a little bit about 
uh, multilateral trade forums and what we see coming there in the next 16 to 18 months, so especially the WTO. And then probably finally, just because we are in a farm bill year and, and one of the few things that Peter and I do related to the farm bill is work on food assistance programs and the ways that the U.S. wheat gets used in those programs and ways that we would like to see it used better in some of those programs. So kind of probably just a couple of minutes on those and, and then we'll open it up to questions. And so I think probably the first big thing uh, where we have to open when we think about the Biden administration and trade policy is the celebrating getting two political nominees confirmed here just this last, uh, essentially, December, January timeframe. And so those are, I think folks have probably all seen it, but Alexis Taylor to be uh, the Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agriculture at USDA, and then Doug McCaleb to be the uh, Assistant Ambassador uh, for the Ambassador for essentially Agricultural Negotiations at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. And so the reason that we see those positions is so crucial and, and why we're celebrating this, even though it is you know, a couple of years into this administration, is, is that having political leaders, because we have great career staff in both of those agencies, uh, that have really, frankly, gotten a number of really important things done for U.S. wheat producers, uh, that highlights the elimination of the tariff in Vietnam as, as being particularly critical and, and something that happened outside of a traditional trade agreement and it happened without political leadership at either of those agencies in agriculture. So we can still get good things done there. But where political leadership becomes so important is when we look at this administration's trade policy, right? The, the one thing you do not see them utter the three words free trade agreement. Uh, and so, but instead, what we have is a series of essentially economic dialogues, and they've got you know, seven or eight of them spread around the world with different regions that really represent the vast majority of U.S. engagement on trade talks. And so that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is a very different thing than what we're used to in the U.S., uh, and it's not going to touch tariffs and traditional market access topics. But there are still a lot of little barriers out there that maybe don't grab the headlines the way tariffs do. But in order to really make progress at the end of the day, we need strong political leadership from the agriculture community. And having both of these folks in place uh, means that we've got experienced Aggies at the helm that are able to be in political level discussions and especially to engage with their counterparts uh, in the other countries that, that happen to be in those economic dialogues. Uh, on behalf of U.S. agriculture. And so we are excited to see where those two folks go and where they are able to take those negotiations as we go forward. Uh, you know, to give you a, a little bit of a flavor of maybe what, a, what some of those economic dialogues look like. Uh, so for the countries that used to be in the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership when the U.S. was in there, uh, it, that has now been from the U.S. side, right? That went forward as a trade agreement the 12 remaining countries on their own, uh, 11 or 12 remaining countries on their own, the U.S. instead has put forward the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, which isn't going to deal with tariff-based market access, but can deal with non-tariff barriers, and the idea being to strengthen relationships between that dozen or so countries. Uh, another one would be the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, or APEP. And so that's going to be a partnership of countries essentially from North and South America. Again, an economic dialogue where we can gather together at senior levels of leadership 
and address challenges that face multiple countries uh, within that region. Uh, and so those are both regions that represent really important customer groups for U.S. wheat associates. And so those are talks that we expect to be engaged in in a significant way going forward. As we think beyond just the bilateral trade relationships, the other piece that's really important uh, for global wheat trade, uh, when we look at it from the U.S. Wheat Associates lens, is the World Trade Organization. I know this is one that, that I think the World Trade Organization made it through about the first 20 years of its existence without a lot of farm groups maybe really paying that much attention to it. But especially during the Trump administration, when the president continued actually the Obama administration's policy of blocking nominees to the appellate body, uh, right? They, they kind of hamstrung that judicial process or quasi-judicial process. And, and that's caught a lot of headlines and I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what that means for the WTO. And I think it, it sowed a lot of discord among some uh, agricultural groups as to how valuable is the WTO for agriculture? Has it lived up to its promises? And I think we can certainly point to ways we'd like to see the WTO be more efficient or more effective, but at the end of the day, we can also point to a lot of instances where it has been very effective for U.S. agriculture. Uh, and the one that, that really comes to my, my mind on that front is China and the market access that we were able to secure there uh, because the Obama administration followed by the Trump administration followed by the Biden administration pressed China to obey their WTO commitments with respect to a wheat tariff rate quota. Now, I don't have my charts today, so I'm, I'm gonna save everybody the, the pain of the details of that case, but, but the bottom line is that China went from being about the 16th largest wheat importer in the world to losing the WTO case, putting new rules into place for their tariff rate quota and becoming the fourth largest <laughs> wheat importer. And so when we think about things that really move the needle for U.S. producers over the long term, we do put a lot of emphasis on the WTO. I think you're going to hear a lot about the WTO in the next 12 to 18 months. They have a big meeting called a ministerial every two years. Uh, the next ministerial is roughly uh, something that hasn't been set yet, but somewhere between 12 and 16 months away. There will be an attempt for a new agriculture agreement there. Whether or not they're successful is probably uh, my crystal ball is not quite that clear. But it is something that from a U.S. wheat standpoint, we'll be paying close attention to and working hard on behalf of the U.S. wheat growers. Uh, the final topic today before opening up for questions is going to be food assistance. Uh, and Peter and I are talking about this one a lot primarily because we're coming up on a farm bill. And that is the, the underlying authorizing language for U.S. Department of Agriculture and a fair number of U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development or USAID uh, programs. Uh, and this really, you know, so I... I grew up in Kansas, uh, worked for the Kansas Wheat Commission right out of school before I came to work for U.S. Wheat Associates. And we always like to tell the story that the idea for U.S. Food for Peace, kind of our cornerstone international development program, started in, a, in the 1950s at a county farm bureau meeting in Kansas. Now, whether that's an, an urban myth or, or uh, an actual true story, probably up for some debate, but I think what is true about that is, is that U.S. farmers have a tremendously long history of being engaged uh, in humanitarian efforts. Uh, and so we're coming up on, on the 70th anniversary of Food for Peace program. And when we think about what that means for wheat farmers and for hungry people around the world, this will be the third year in a row, right, as we just crossed the third year in a row, of 
donating more than a million tons of U.S. grown wheat to feed hungry populations. I think the one thing we know is, especially with the Russia-Ukraine conflict today, there is as much need for humanitarian assistance as we've seen at any point in the last two decades. And so we do expect that to, to continue to be a strong point of emphasis for U.S. Wheat Associates. Uh, but especially with Farm Bill coming up, there are opportunities to make those programs more effective and to help us reach as many people as possible. Uh, if we kind of lump all those those together, just to help put it into some context, that million tons, you know, think of it as one destination, right? It's the U.S. government buying it on behalf of hungry people. Uh, that, that would represent a, a top 10 market uh, as an export destination for U.S. wheat associates. And so that that is a, a big piece of why we focus on it uh, and, and a big piece of why it is so important to the U.S. wheat industry. So with that, I, I feel like I've covered a lot of ground and just uh, certainly longer than the five minutes I, I said it would be. But uh, we would sure be glad to take any questions if there are some on those topics or, or other topics within the world of trade policy that folks are interested in talking about. Thank you, Dalton. And Matthew, go ahead with your question, but before you do, I'm just going to remind anybody who has joined us since my intro spiel that you are welcome to ask questions. In fact, we want you to. So go ahead and just unmute your microphone to do that, or you can type a question into the chat below and we'll make sure it gets answered, or use the reactions button at the bottom of your screen to raise your hand and we'll make sure that you have a chance to ask your questions. So go ahead, Matthew. Okay. Um, first, our, on the topic of like you mentioned bio, biotech and things like that, do we see customer acceptance of that shifting? Is, is it because, are we getting closer to it or do you expect that to continue to be a concern for customers? Uh, it, it's a good question. And, and so for folks that maybe haven't followed that discussion, there's a company in Argentina called Bioseries, and they've developed a drought-tolerant GM wheat. Uh, and it worked towards commercializing that on a limited scale in Argentina. Uh, and they've been going through the regulatory process in the U.S. and a number of other countries around the world. So I, where I, I think where we're at, uh, Matthew, is that we really haven't, seen you know, because we're not all currently on a on a path to commercialization in the u.s we've not really right. restarted that discussion about customer acceptance uh with our customers overseas so i think a number of things on that front have happened since the last time we we probably had those discussions more than a decade ago uh, and you've seen several other food crops uh pick up the benefits of uh you know biotechnology I, I think that's probably has has had an impact. And I think the other piece is, is that U.S. wheat, you know, though we're supportive of the technology, we've always maintained that customer choice is something that we're committed to. And so what we're really looking at, you know, from our discussions with BioSeries is we've provided them the list with what we consider to be key markets where we would need to see regulatory approval uh, before they would, would start down a commercialization path here in the U.S., uh, and I know that, I mean, there are certainly markets on that list where they've received approval from, and there are markets that uh, they have uh, you know, made submissions to. And, and then I think there are markets that they're probably just getting started on. So that's still uh, certainly relatively early in a lot of those discussions. Good. Thank you. 
Dalton, you mentioned non-trade, non-tariff trade barriers. Can you just explain that, what those are and give us some examples and why, why that's a thing? For sure. So everybody always thinks about trade policies being like big picture, uh, like fancy negotiations or high level negotiations. And we go to fancy locations like Geneva or Brussels and, and do these big negotiating rounds. We put agreements in front of Congress. And that certainly is a, a big piece of trade policy. Uh, or, or rather it, it used to be, you know, where we are now in these, you know, a little bit smaller economic dialogues, what we really are trying to tackle in, in most of those instances are, are what we would term non-tariff barriers. And so we think of a, a non-tariff barrier NTB as anything that uh, impedes or adds costs to, or otherwise, you know, creates a barrier, hence the name, to wheat trade uh, that, that isn't specifically a tariff. And so that's everything from countries requiring pesticide residue testing to countries implementing uh, unworkable pesticide MRLs or maximum residue limits. Uh, it would be weed seed restrictions uh, where some countries may, in our mind, unfairly restrict certain weed seeds that are common in the U.S. and common in other countries. Uh, it would also include uh, spores. So think about uh, the bunt species that we have uh, that impact U.S. wheat production. You know, there are some countries that regulate very heavily dwarf bunt. There are some countries that raise problems with common bunt spores when they're found in shipments. Uh, and so that, you know, those are kind of what we would, those would all be specifically SPS or sanitary and phytosanitary barriers. Uh, there would also be countries, though, that have import license requirements uh, that that impede the flow of wheat uh, and a number of others. And so it, it really is a wide bucket. By and large, they tend to be more technical than tariffs. Uh, and, and they're not necessarily always financial the way that tariffs, right? Tariffs act as a barrier because they increase the cost of our product. And so in some ways, they're actually an easier barrier to get around because you know what the cost is. If a country puts into place a, a weed seed or pesticide MRL barrier, you don't know what the cost is because you may not know if you have a problem until that vessel has arrived in the country. And at that point, it becomes an all or nothing, very expensive game. And that makes exporters nervous or hesitant. Uh, and it adds, the adds to the cost of doing business, but those costs aren't always well known. And th that's what makes non-tariff barriers particularly uh, nefarious in, in working in international trade. And over the past year, with the conflict in the Black Sea region, where we know a lot of competitive wheat from the United States come, comes from that area, um, have we seen a relaxing of some of those non-tariff -trade, non trade barriers from other countries because they need the wheat? It's a, it's a pretty fair question. Uh, and I... I think initially, I was hopeful we would maybe see more relaxed rules or more uh, relaxed enforcement of those than we did. So I think we could definitely point to a couple of instances where we have seen uh, some additional flexibility or additional movement, but actually where the, that conflict probably drove discussions around tariffs 
and whether countries were willing to unilaterally lower tariffs just on a most favored nation basis or waive tariffs for a period of time or waive specific import fees uh, just because it, it created such a spike in commodity costs that countries were eager to do anything they could to be responsive to that food price inflation. Uh, unfortunately, many of our non-tariff barriers are, are kind of buried down in the literal and figurative weeds at a technical staff level, and they're a little bit tougher uh, to move just with political whims. But I think we're still very optimistic that as, as this conflict is prolonged, uh, that countries do revisit a, a number of those and that, that we'll have an opportunity to, to still make good progress on them. Okay. So you mentioned the farm bill. We all know we're up for, up for a renewal. If you could rub your magic lamp and get three wishes for the farm bill, what would they be? <laughs> uh, well, I tell you, and Peter, feel free to, to chime in on these, but, but I'm probably going, uh, we need an increase in market access program and foreign market development funds. So U.S. Wheat Associates, we're funded predominantly by Farmers First, right? So state wheat commissions, like the one in Idaho wheat, are a key source of our funding. That funding is then matched by the U.S. Foreign Ag Service uh, in two programs, really, Market Access or MAP, and Foreign Market Development Program, FMD. Uh, those programs got their last increase in the 2002 Farm Bill. And so when we think about inflation and a whole bunch of other costs that have been taken out of those programs since that time, but the big one is inflation. You know, we're still running with basically the same budget that we've had for nearly 20 years now. Is it at some point that means as a USDA cooperator, we're either going to have to cut back our programming and focus it uh, where we can make the biggest impact, or we've got to invest additional resources. And U.S. farmers have been really good about providing additional resources when USDA hasn't been able to. Uh, but there is a big push underway to increase those resources in, in this bill. I think after that, we probably turn from a U.S. wheat standpoint because we don't do domestic farm policy. So you're not going to see Title I changes or crop insurance changes on our particular priority list. But after that, because it is in, in the farm bill, we're probably going to turn to food aid. And I might kick it over to Peter and let him talk about a change or two uh, that, that we might like to see uh, in the food aid space. Just just kind of big picture, high level stuff that uh, could could maybe impact the, the number of bushels we can send overseas there. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to touch on that really quick. So like Dalton said, our, our Food for Peace Title II, um, as well as Food for Progress and, and McGovern Dole Food for Education are, are all food assistance programs that are reauthorized in the Farm Bill. Uh, those programs work really well in some respects. Like Dalton mentioned earlier, we're, we're on our third consecutive year of uh, doing over a million metric tons in, in just wheat through those food aid programs. Uh, but there are definitely some, some, some tweaks around the edges that we think uh, would make a really, really big difference in, in making wheat uh, a little bit more, more attractive and, and easier to uh, ship additional bushels. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we've got the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust. That's kind of a reserve fund uh, that USAID can use in, in extreme emergencies to uh, tap some additional resources 
Uh, last year, they, they tapped that entire fund, drained it down to zero uh, for the first time ever. And so uh, we, we certainly have a huge priority to get that, that refilled so that uh, that, that reserve fund um, can be at its full capacity while we continue to see uh, substantial humanitarian need in the Horn of Africa and the Middle East, uh, especially as the, the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine uh, limits wheat supplies from the region. Uh, outside of the humanitarian trust, uh, there's some some transportation changes that could uh, uh, could Im improve wheat shipments as well. Uh, Food for Progress has a transportation cap that basically says no matter how much money um, is in this program, you can only spend a certain dollar amount on transportation costs. And what that means is even if they have extra money to buy wheat and ship it to other countries, they can't do that because their transportation costs are already maxed out. So if we raise that transportation budget, uh, they can use additional funds to, to buy more wheat uh, and make that program uh, even more effective. Uh, certainly, there's some other tweaks around the edges as we look at uh, making sure that we're using U.S. grown commodities versus uh, buying com competitor commodities overseas um, and some other administrative changes that would make those, those food assistance programs uh, function a little bit better. But, but those are the, the few things that are especially top of mind as we go into farm bill discussions this year. All right, thank you. How, what's the history on those food aid deliveries that we make? How often do those countries turn around and, and turn into U.S. wheat buying countries? I'd say, so it's a long game, right? And so I, I don't think that I could probably point to a major aid destination in the last decade that has made the jump and become a commercial buyer, right? So when, when we think about our two largest uh, countries right now, and, and it is, I mean, they're probably in the 40 to 45% range of all U.S. wheat aid donations on an annual basis right now is, is Yemen, which is a soft white program, and Ethiopia, which is a hard red winter program. Uh, and I mean, Yemen was a, a commercial market just a couple of years ago. Uh, and now with the civil war and strife, they have it almost a solely humanitarian destination, which is a, an incredible tragedy. Uh, so I think we've got good hope that both those countries in the future will be commercial buyers of U.S. wheat. It may just be a while. If we go back historically, though, uh, and this is where, you know, I think the heart of these programs really gets unique, that countries that today are in the top five or six of U.S. wheat's donation or U.S. wheat's export programs in commercial sales were started out as being donational programs. And so a country like the Philippines, right, now our second largest market on an annual basis, maybe third largest this year, uh, started out as, as strictly a humanitarian program. South Korea would be another one that's, you know, right up there. Uh, certainly in the top couple of markets, five or six on an annual basis and in an incredibly high value market uh, started out as an aid program post-World War II. So when we look at, at kind of those uh, programs, they're, you know, those export commercial sales programs today, they really had their genesis and their origins in rebuilding after major conflicts. All right. Well, we are just about at our 30 minute mark. It's probably the middle of the night for you in Portugal, Dalton. So we don't wanna keep you much longer. 
just want to um, ask if there are any additional questions for Dalton and Peter while we have them here. And Matthew has some. Good. Go ahead. Uh, you mentioned that China went from 16th to 4th. How much of that was under like the, the China phase one trade? How much was separate? And then do you see additional movement there moving forward? For sure. Uh, so you're, you're spot on, Matthew, that the new TRQ rules were adapted just a couple of months ahead of the phase or a couple of months on either side of the phase one agreement being adopted. And so I, a couple of thoughts on that point. One is that when I say from 16th to 4th, that's their global import number. So while phase one agreement may have had some bearing on it, at the end of the day, they just became a bigger wheat importer from all origins, uh, not just from the U.S. And, and the phase one agreement was a very U.S. specific agreement. I also think that as we get more years removed from the phase one agreement and recognize that China made virtually no attempt to meet those purchase targets, uh, I think several of us that, that have watched that relationship for some time, we're now putting, and I'm admittedly biased because I worked on this case for quite a few years at U.S. Week. Uh, now you can say, look, they didn't follow very much else about phase one. They certainly didn't follow through on the purchase commitments. Uh, we think that points to the WTO enforcement mechanism playing a bigger role than phase one did. Now, certainly there's a lot of value in phase one. Pieces of both of our WTO cases against China on the TRQ and on domestic support were addressed in phase one. Part of the, and we really have to give credit to USTR Lighthizer at the time and uh, US Ambassador. USCR Ambassador for Agriculture, Greg Dowd at the time, has actually secured a tighter rules around the TRQ in that phase one agreement outside the purchase targets that you know, all the pieces of phase one that nobody talks about that made the WTO enforcement that much more valuable. Uh, and so in terms of do we think there could be you know, more good things to come there, I certainly think so in the case of U.S. wheat producers Globally, not as much. You know, that essentially China has maxed out their tariff rate quota at the WTO for the last three years, effectively. Uh, and so you're probably not a lot of room for growth above and beyond that, because after that, it's a 65% tariff, which is just incredibly prohibitive. But, you know, the U.S., because we've faced really a major crop shortfall in at least one region for each of the last three years. I think when, when we, when that weather pattern shifts and we're back to abundant HRW and HRS and SW supplies, we should be much more competitive in that market and, and see a much larger portion of that 9.6 million tons than what we did this past year. Uh, and I, I think that's a big piece of why we get so optimistic about China. Thank you. All okay. right. One do you have another question, Matthew? Nope. Nope. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Um, I think I don't see anyone else's microphones unmuted, but Dalton, one last question. We obviously, you and Peter are both uh, elbow deep in acronyms for all of these trade relationships. Is it, have bi, are bilateral 
trade agreements more beneficial or less beneficial than multilateral trade agreements? What are the pros and cons? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I think you probably, to a certain extent, each have their place. And I'll apologize. We do. We swim in an acronym, acronym suit in U.S. trade policy. Uh, when you can pull together a strong multilateral agreement, right, and enforce better rules than what you could otherwise on all players, I mean, that holds tremendous value, right? So we think about the, the core underpinnings of the WTO, the SPS rules, most favored nation rules, national treatment rules. Those are all things that underpin the rest of U.S. trade policy. Is it, it's tough to imagine where we'd be without an agreement like that. But I also think that we've got to be realistic about going forward that multilateral, large-scale, free trade agreements have become very politically unpopular in the U.S., things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so from our end, that, that's where then we start looking much more at the value that bilateral trading relationships and bilateral agreements can bring. Now, the US, U.S. wheat, and this is where, as an industry, we're in a very fortunate position that not a lot of our fellow commodities are, in that when you look at, at all the members of CPTPP, so essentially Southeast Asia, plus uh, you know, U.S. and Canada and Mexico, we no longer have a single differential tariff in that entire region or in that entire group of countries uh, when we compare ourselves to our biggest competitors in Canada and Australia. And so to a certain extent, we have a little bit of a luxury of saying we don't need back in CPTPP immediately uh, because right now we're on a level playing field with the Canadians and the Australians. That's not the case for a lot of ag commodities. And so when you hear other commodity groups, you know, maybe pounding that drum a little harder and with a little bit more urgency in their voice, uh, it's probably because they still face barriers that we were fortunate enough to get taken care of. You know, the U.S.-Japan phase one agreement, the two agreements with Vietnam to unilaterally lower tariffs, you know, the Philippines ongoing commitment to keep wheat tariffs level with Australia. You know, that, that's been in place for quite a few years. So I, to a certain extent, uh, the, we've been very successful bilaterally and expect to that we'll continue to do that. You know, I think just from a a pragmatic political standpoint, there's probably a lot more future in the next couple of years or a lot more to be accomplished bilaterally than there is multilaterally. All right. Well, we are, I'm going to go ahead and let you get back to your normal schedules now. Um, but thank you so much, Dalton and Peter, for joining us. Um, one last call. If you have a question, go ahead and let, shout it out. Let me know. Um, otherwise, we will see you next month for our next From the Field. So pay attention to our social media, our website, and our newsletters to find out what those topics will be in the, the dates and times. And thank you again, Dalton and Peter. This was great. Thanks for having us on. And if there are ever questions on trade policy in the meantime, don't hesitate to reach out directly to us or else uh, Brittany and the rest of the team there at Idaho Week know how to get to us. And we'd love to talk more. Uh, we trade policy uh, anytime there's there's somebody else out there that wants to do the same all right thank you and just a reminder for any for everyone else this episode will be uploaded to our podcast platforms and our youtube channel um, later today so you can pass it on to anyone who 
who was interested but couldn't make it, um, couldn't join live. So those are always available. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks much.